What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 7 of The Middle Temple Murder by J.S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Mr. Aylmore Spargo, keenly observant and watchful, felt, rather than saw, Breton start. He himself preserved an imperturbable equanimity. He gave a mere glance at the photograph to which Mr. Webster was pointing. "'Oh,' he said, "'that he?' "'That's the gentleman, sir,' replied Webster. "'Done to the life, that is.' No difficulty in recognising of that, Mr. Spargo. You're absolutely sure? demanded Spargo. There are a lot of men in the House of Commons, you know, who wear beards, and many of the beards are grey. But Webster wagged his head. That's him, sir, he repeated. I'm as sure of that as I am that my name's William Webster. That's the man I saw talking to him whose picture you've got in your paper. Can't say no more, sir. Very good, said Spargo. I'm much obliged to you. I'll see Mr. Aylmore. Leave me your address in London, Mr. Webster. How long do you remain in town? My address is the Beechcroft Hotel, Bloomsbury, sir, and I shall be there for another week answered the farmer hope i've been of some use mr spargo as i says to my wife spargo cut his visitor short in polite fashion and bowed him out he turned to breton who still stood staring at the album of portraits there what did i tell you he said didn't i say i should get some news there it is breton nodded his head he seemed thoughtful. Yes, he agreed. Yes, I say, Spargo. Well? Mr. Aylmore is my prospective father-in-law, you know. Quite aware of it. Didn't you introduce me to his daughters only yesterday? 
but how did you know they were his daughters spargo laughed as he sat down to his desk instinct intuition he answered however never mind that just now well i found something out marbury if that is the dead man's real name and anyway it's all we know him by was in the company of mr aylmore that night good what are you going to do about it asked breton do see mr aylmore of course he was turning over the leaves of a telephone address book one hand had already picked up the mouthpiece of the instrument on his desk look here said breton i know where mr aylmore is always to be found at twelve o'clock at the a m p the atlantic and pacific club you know in st james's if you like i'll go with you spargo glanced at the clock and laid down the telephone all right he said eleven o'clock now i've something to do i'll meet you outside the a and p at exactly noon i'll be there agreed breton he made for the door and with his hand on it turned what do you expect from from what we've just heard he asked spargo shrugged his shoulders wait until we hear what mr aylmore has to say he answered i suppose this man marbury was some old acquaintance breton closed the door and went away left alone spargo began to mutter to himself good god he says danesworth painsworth something of that sort one of the two excellent that our farmer friend should have so much observation ah and why should mr stephen aylmore be recognised as danesworth or painsworth or something of that sort now who is mr stephen aylmore beyond being what i know him to be spargo's fingers went instinctively to one of a number of books of reference which stood on his desk they turned with practised swiftness to a page over which his eye ran just as swiftly he read aloud aylmore stephen m p for brookminster since nineteen ten residences twenty three st osyth court kensington buena vista great marlow member atlantic and pacific and city venturers clubs interested in south american enterprise hmm muttered spargo putting the book away that's not very illuminating however we've got one move finished now we'll make another going over to the album of photographs spargo deftly removed that of mr aylmore put it in an envelope and the envelope in his pocket and leaving the office hailed a taxicab and ordered its driver to take him to the anglo-orient hotel this was the something to do of which he had spoken to breton spargo wanted to do it alone mrs walters was in her low-windowed office when spargo entered the hall she recognized him at once and motioned him into her parlor i remember you said mrs walters you came with the detective mr rathbury have you seen him since asked spargo not since replied mrs walters no and i was wondering if he'd be coming round because she paused there and looked at spargo with particular inquiry you're a friend of his aren't you 
she asked. I suppose you know as much as he does about this. He and I, replied Spargo, with easy confidence, are working this case together. You can tell me anything you tell him. The landlady rummaged in her pocket and produced an old purse, from an inner compartment of which she brought out a small object wrapped in tissue paper. Well, she said, unwrapping the paper, we found this in number twenty this morning. It was lying under the dressing table. The girl that found it brought it to me, and I thought it was a bit of glass. But Walters, he says, as how he shouldn't be surprised if it's a diamond. And since we found it, the waiter who took the whisky up to twenty, after Mr. Marbury came in with the other gentleman, has told me that when he went into the room, the two gentlemen were looking at a paper full of things like this. So there? Spargo fingered the shining bit of stone. That's a diamond, right enough, he said. Put it away, Mrs. Walters. I shall see Rathbury presently, and I'll tell him about it. Now, that other gentleman, you told us you saw him. Could you recognise him? I mean a photograph of him. Is this the man? Spargo knew from the expression of Mrs. Walters' face that she had no more doubt than Webster had. Oh, yes, she said. That's the gentleman who came in with Mr. Marbury. I should have known him in a thousand. Anybody would recognise him from that. Perhaps you'd let our hall porter and the waiter I mentioned just now look at it. I'll see them separately, and see if they've ever seen a man who resembles this, replied Spargo. The two men recognised the photograph at once, without any prompting, and Spargo, after a word or two with the landlady, rode off to the Atlantic and Pacific Club, and found Ronald Breton awaiting him on the steps. He made no reference to his recent doings, and together they went into the house and asked for Mr. Aylmore. Spargo looked with more than uncommon interest at the man who presently came to them in the visitors' room. He was already familiar with Mr. Aylmore's photograph, but he never remembered seeing him in real life. The member for Brookminster was one of that rapidly diminishing body of legislators whose members are disposed to work quietly and unobtrusively, doing yeoman service on committees, obeying every behest of the party whips, without forcing themselves into the limelight or seizing every opportunity to air their opinions. Now that Spargo met him in the flesh, he proved to be pretty much what the journalists had expected. A rather cold-mannered, self-contained man, who looked as if he had been brought up in a school of rigid repression, and taught not to waste words. He showed no more than the merest of languid interest in Spargo, when Breton introduced him, and his face was quite expressionless when Spargo brought to an end his brief explanation, purposely shortened, of his object in calling upon him. "'Yes,' he said indifferently, "'yes, it is quite true that I met Marbury and spent a little time with him on the evening your informant spoke of. I met him, as he told you, in the lobby of the house. I was much surprised to meet him. I had not seen him for—I really don't know how many years.' He paused and looked at Spargo, as if he was wondering what he ought or not to say to a newspaper man. Spargo remained silent, waiting, and presently Mr. Aylmore went on. "'I read your account in the Watchman this morning,' he said. 
I was wondering, when you called just now, if I would communicate with you or with the police. The fact is... I suppose you want this for your paper, eh? He continued after a sudden breaking off. I shall not print anything that you wish me not to print, answered Spargo, if you care to give me any information. Well, well, said Mr. Aylmore, I don't mind. The fact is, I knew next to nothing. Marbury was a man with whom I had some, well, business relations of a sort, a great many years ago. It must be twenty, perhaps more, since I lost sight of him. When he came up to me in the lobby the other night, I had to make an effort of memory to recall him. He wished me, having once met me, to give him some advice, and as there was little doing in the house that night, and as he had once been almost a friend, I walked to his hotel with him, chatting. He told me that he had only landed from Australia that morning, and what he wanted my advice about, principally, was diamonds, Australian diamonds. I was unaware, remarked Spargo, that diamonds were ever found in Australia. Mr. Aylmore smiled a little cynically. Perhaps so, he said, but diamonds have been found in Australia from time to time, ever since Australia was known to Europeans, and, in the opinion of experts, they will eventually be found there in quantity. Anyhow, Marbury had got hold of some Australian diamonds, and he showed them to me at his hotel, a number of them. We examined them in his room. "'What did he do with them? Afterwards?' asked Spargo. He put them in his waistcoat pocket, in a very small wash leather bag, from which he had taken them. There were, in all, sixteen or twenty stones, not more, and they were all small. I advised him to see some expert. I mentioned streeters to him. Now, I can tell you how he got hold of Mr. Breton's address. The two young men pricked up their ears. Spargo unconsciously tightened his hold on the pencil with which he was making notes. He got it from me, continued Mr. Aylmore. The handwriting on the scrap of paper is mine, hurriedly scrawled. He wanted legal advice. As I knew very little about lawyers, I told him that if he called on Mr. Breton, Mr. Breton would be able to tell him of a first-class sharp solicitor. I wrote down Mr. Breton's address for him on a scrap of paper which he tore off a letter that he took from his pocket. By the by, I observed that when his body was found, there was nothing on it in the shape of papers or money. I'm quite sure that when I left him he had a lot of gold on him, those diamonds, and a breast-pocket full of letters. "'Where did you leave him, sir?' asked Spargo. "'You left the hotel together, I believe.' "'Yes, we strolled along when we left it. Having once met, we had much to talk of, and it was a fine night. We walked across Waterloo Bridge, and very shortly afterwards he left me. And that is really all I know. My own impression—' He paused for a moment, and Spargo waited silently. "'My own impression—' though I confess it may seem to have no very solid grounds, is that Marbury was decoyed to where he was found, and was robbed and murdered by some person who knew he had valuables on him. There is the fact that he was robbed, at any rate. "'I have a notion,' said Breton, diffidently. "'Mayn't be worth much, but I've had it, all the same. Some fellow-passenger of Marbury's may have trapped him all day.' 
Middle Temple Lane's pretty lonely at night, you know. No one made any comment upon this suggestion, and on Spargo looking at Mr. Aylmore, the Member of Parliament rose and glanced at the door. "'Well, that's all I can tell you, Mr. Spargo,' he said. "'You see, it's not much after all. "'Of course there'll be an inquest on Marbury, and I shall have to retell it. "'But you're welcome to print what I've told you.' Spargo left Breton with his future father-in-law and went away towards New Scotland Yard. He and Rathbury had promised to share news. Now he had some to communicate. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of The Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Man from the Safe Deposit Spargo found Rathbury sitting alone in a small, somewhat dismal apartment, which was chiefly remarkable for the business-like paucity of its furnishings and its indefinable air of secrecy. There was a plain writing-table and a hard chair or two, a map of London, much discoloured on the wall, a few faded photographs of eminent bands in the world of crime, and a similar number of well-thumbed books of reference. The detective himself, when Spargo was shown in to him, was seated at the table, chewing an unlighted cigar and engaged in the apparently aimless task of drawing hieroglyphics on scraps of paper. He looked up as the journalist entered and held out his hand. "'Well, I congratulate you on what you stuck in the watchman this morning,' he said. "'Made extra good reading, I thought. They did right to let you tackle that job. Going straight through with it now, I suppose, Mr. Spargo.' Spargo dropped into the chair nearest to Rathbury's right hand. He lighted a cigarette, and having blown out a whiff of smoke, nodded his head in a fashion which indicated that the detective might consider his question answered in the affirmative. "'Look here,' he said. "'We settled yesterday, didn't we, that you and I are to consider ourselves partners, as it were, in this job? That's all right,' he continued, as Rathbury nodded very quietly. "'Very well. Have you made any further progress?' Rathbury put his thumbs in the armholes of his waistcoat and, leaning back in his chair, shook his head. "'Frankly, I haven't,' he replied. "'Of course there's a lot being done in the usual official routine way. We've men out making various inquiries. We're inquiring about Marbury's voyage to England. All that we know up to now is that he was certainly a passenger,' on a liner which landed at Southampton in accordance with what he told those people at the Anglo-Orient, that he left the ship in the usual way and was understood to take the train to town, as he did. That's all. There's nothing in that. We've cabled to Melbourne for any news of him from there, but I expect little from that. All right, said Spargo. And what are you doing, you, yourself? "'because if we're to share facts, I must know what my partner's after. "'Just now you seemed to be... drawing.' "'Rathbury laughed. "'Well, to tell you the truth,' he said, "'when I want to work things out, I come into this room. "'It's quiet, as you see, and I scribble anything on paper while I think. "'I was figuring out my next step, and...' "'Do you see it?' asked Spargo quickly. "'Well...' "'I want to find the man who went with Marbury to that hotel,' replied Rathbury. "'It seems to me—' 
Spargo wagged his finger at his fellow contriver. "'I found him,' he said. "'That's what I wrote that article for, to find him. I knew it would find him. I've never had any training in your sort of work, but I knew that article would get him, and it has got him.' Rathbury accorded the journalist a look of admiration. "'Good,' he said. "'And who is he?' "'I'll tell you the story,' answered Spargo, "'and in a summary. "'This morning a man named Webster, a farmer, "'a visitor to London, came to me at the office "'and said that being at the House of Commons last night "'he witnessed a meeting between Marbury "'and a man who was evidently a Member of Parliament "'and saw them go away together. "'I showed him an album of photographs of the present members "'and he immediately recognised the portrait of one of them "'as the man in question.' I thereupon took the portrait to the Anglo-Orient Hotel. Mrs. Walters also at once recognised it as that of the man who came to the hotel with Marbury, stopped with him a while in his room, and left with him. The man is Mr. Stephen Aylmore, the member for Brookminster. Rathbury expressed his feelings in a sharp whistle. "'I know him,' he said. "'Of course, I remember Mrs. Walters' description now.' but his is a familiar type. Tall, grey-bearded, well-dressed. Hmm. Well, we'll have to see Mr. Aylmore at once. I've seen him, said Spargo. Naturally, for you see Mrs. Walters gave me a bit more evidence. This morning they found a loose diamond on the floor of number 20, and after it was found the waiter who took the drinks up to Marbury and his guests that night remembered that when he entered the room the two gentlemen were looking at a paper full of similar objects. So then I went to see Mr. Aylmore. You know young Breton, the barrister. You met him with me. You remember? The young fellow whose name and address were found on Marbury, replied Rathbury. I remember. Breton is engaged to Aylmore's daughter, continued Spargo. Breton took me to Aylmore's club and Aylmore gives a plain, straightforward account of the matter, which he's granted me leave to print. It clears up a lot of things. Aylmore knew Marbury over twenty years ago. He lost sight of him. They met accidentally in the lobby of the house on the evening preceding the murder. Marbury told him that he wanted his advice about those rare things, Australian diamonds. He went back with him to his hotel and spent a while with him, then they walked out together as far as Waterloo Bridge, where Aylmore left him and went home. Further, the scrap of grey paper is accounted for. Marbury wanted the address of a smart solicitor. Aylmore didn't know of one, but told Marbury that if he called on young Breton, he'd know, and would put him in the way to find one. Marbury wrote Breton's address down. That's Aylmore's story. But it's got an important addition. Aylmore says that when he left Marbury, Marbury had on him a quantity of those diamonds in a wash-leather bag, a lot of gold, and a breast-pocket full of letters and papers. Now, there was nothing on him when he was found dead in Middle Temple Lane. Spargo stopped and lighted a fresh cigarette. "'That's all I know,' he said. "'What do you make of it?' Rathbury leaned back in his chair in his apparently favourite attitude and stared hard at the dusty ceiling above him. "'Don't know,' he said. "'It brings things up to a point, certainly. 
Aylmore and Marbury parted at Waterloo Bridge, very late. Waterloo Bridge is pretty well next door to the temple. But how did Marbury get into the temple? Unobserved. We've made every inquiry, and we can't trace him in any way as regards that movement. There's a clue for his going there in the scrap of paper bearing Breton's address, but even a colonial would know that no business was done in the temple at midnight, eh? Well, said Spargo, I've thought of one of two things. He may have been one of those men who like to wander around at night. He may have seen, he would see, plenty of lights in the temple at that hour. He may have slipped in unobserved. It's possible. It's quite possible. I once had a moonlight saunter in the temple myself after midnight, and had no difficulty about walking in and out, either. But if Marbury was murdered for the sake of what he had on him, how did he meet with his murderer, or murderers, in there? Criminals don't hang about Middle Temple Lane. The detective shook his head. He picked up his pencil and began making more hieroglyphics. "'What's your theory, Mr. Spargo?' he asked suddenly. "'I suppose you've got one.' "'Have you?' asked Spargo bluntly. "'Well,' returned Rathbury, hesitatingly, "'I hadn't up to now. "'But now, now after what you've told me, "'I think I can make one. "'It seems to me that after Marbury left Aylmore, "'he probably mooned about by himself, "'that he was decoyed into the temple.' and was there murdered and robbed. There are a lot of queer ins and outs, nooks and corners in that old spot, Mr. Spargo, and the murderer, if he knew his ground well, could easily hide himself until he could get away in the morning. He might be a man who had access to chambers or offices. Think how easy it would be for such a man, having once killed and robbed his victim, to lie hid for hours afterwards. For aught we know, the man who murdered Marbury may have been within twenty feet of you when you first saw his dead body that morning, eh? Before Spargo could reply to this suggestion, an official entered the room and whispered a few words in the detective's ear. "'Show him in at once,' said Rathbury. He turned to Spargo as the man quitted the room and smiled significantly. "'Here's somebody who wants to tell something about the Marbury case,' he remarked. Let's hope it'll be news worth hearing. Spargo smiled in his queer fashion. It strikes me that you've only got to interest an inquisitive public in order to get news, he said. The principal thing is to investigate it when you've got it. Who's this now? The official had returned with a dapper-looking gentleman in a frock coat and silk hat bearing upon him the unmistakable stamp of the city man, who inspected Rathbury with deliberation, and Spargo with a glance, and being seated, turned to the detective as undoubtedly the person he desired to converse with. "'I understand that you are the officer in charge of the Marbury case,' he observed. "'I believe I can give you some valuable information in respect to that. "'I read the account of the affair in the Watchman newspaper this morning,' and saw the portrait of the murdered man there, and I was at first inclined to go to the watchman office with my information, but I finally decided to approach the police instead of the press, regarding the police as being more... more responsible. "'Much obliged to you, sir,' said Rathbury, with a glance at Spargo. 
whom have i the pleasure of my name replied the visitor drawing out and laying down a card is myerst mr e p myerst secretary of the london and universal safe deposit company i may i suppose speak with confidence continued mr myerst with a side glance at spargo my information is confidential rathbury inclined his head and put his fingers together you may speak with every confidence mr myerst he answered if what you have to tell has any real bearing on the marbury case it will probably have to be repeated in public you know sir but at present it will be treated as private it has a very real bearing on the case i should say replied mr myerst yes i should decidedly say so the fact is that on june twenty first at about to be precise three o'clock in the afternoon a stranger who gave the name of john marbury and his present address as the anglo-orient hotel waterloo called at our establishment and asked if he could rent a small safe he explained to me that he desired to deposit in such a safe a small leather box which by the by was of remarkably ancient appearance that he had brought with him i showed him a safe such as he wanted informed him of the rent and of the rules of the place and he engaged the safe paid the rent for one year in advance and deposited his leather box an affair of about a foot square there and then after that having exchanged a remark or two about the altered conditions of london which i understood him to say he had not seen for a great many years he took his key and his departure i think there can be no doubt about this being the mr marbury who was found murdered not at all i should say mr myerst said rathbury and i'm much obliged to you for coming here now you might tell me a little more sir did marbury tell you anything about the contents of the box no he merely remarked that he wished the greatest care to be taken of it replied the secretary didn't give you any hint as to what was in it asked rathbury none but he was very particular to assure himself that it could not be burnt nor burgled nor otherwise molested replied mr myerst he appeared to be greatly relieved when he found that it was impossible for any one but himself to take his property from his safe ah said rathbury winking at spargo so he would no doubt and marbury himself sir now how did he strike you mr myerst gravely considered this question mr marbury struck me he answered at last as a man who had probably seen strange places and before leaving he made what i will term a remarkable remark about in fact about his leather box his leather box said rathbury and what was it sir this replied the secretary that box he said is safe now but it's been safer it's been buried and deep down too for many and many a year end of chapter eight chapter nine of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nine a dealer in rare stamps 
buried and deep down too for many and many a year repeated mr myers eyeing his companions with keen glances i consider that gentleman a very remarkable remark very remarkable rathbury stuck his thumbs in the armholes of his waistcoat again and began swaying backwards and forwards in his chair he looked at spargo and with his knowledge of men he knew that all spargo's journalistic instincts had been aroused and that he was as keen as mustard to be off on a new scent remarkable remarkable mr myers he assented what do you say mr spargo spargo turned slowly and for the first time since myers had entered made a careful inspection of him the inspection lasted several seconds then spargo spoke and what did you say to that he asked quietly myers looked from his questioner to rathbury and rathbury thought it time to enlighten the caller i may as well tell you mr myers he said smilingly that this is mr spargo of the watchman mr spargo wrote the article about the marbury case of which you spoke when you came in mr spargo you'll gather is deeply interested in this matter and he and i in our different capacities are working together so you understand myers regarded spargo in a new light and while he was so looking at him spargo repeated the question he had just put i said what did you say to that myers hesitated well uh, i don't think i said anything he replied nothing that one might call material you know didn't ask him what he meant suggested spargo oh no not at all replied myers spargo got up abruptly from his chair then you missed one of the finest opportunities i ever heard of he said half sneeringly you might have heard such a story he paused as if it were not worth while to continue and turned to rathbury who was regarding him with amusement look here rathbury he said is it possible to get that box opened it'll have to be opened answered rathbury rising it's got to be opened it probably contains the clue we want i'm going to ask mr myers here to go with me just now to take the first steps about having it opened i shall have to get an order we may get the matter through to-day but at any rate we'll have it done to-morrow morning can you arrange for me to be present when that comes off asked spargo you can certain that's all right rathbury now i'm off and you'll ring me up or come round if you hear anything and i'll do the same by you and without further word spargo went quickly away and just as quickly returned to the watchman office there the assistant who had been told off to wait upon his orders during this new crusade met him with a business card this gentleman came in to see you about an hour ago mr spargo he said he thinks he can tell you something about the marbury affair and he said that as he couldn't wait perhaps you'd step round to his place when you came in spargo took the card and read mr james crydeer dealer in philatelic rarities two thousand twenty one strand spargo put the card in his waistcoat pocket and went out again wondering why mr james crydeer could not would not or did not call himself a dealer in rare postage stamps and so use plain english 
he went up fleet street and soon found the shop indicated on the card and his first glance at its exterior showed that whatever business might have been done by mr crydier in the past at that establishment there was to be none done there in the future by him for there were newly printed bills in the window announcing that the place was to let and inside he found a short portly elderly gentleman who was superintending the packing up and removal of the last of his stock he turned a bright inquiring eye on the journalist mr crydier said spargo the same sir answered the philatelist you are mr spargo of the watchman you called on me mr crydier opened the door of a tiny apartment at the rear of the very little shop and motioned his caller to enter he followed him in and carefully closed the door glad to see you mr spargo he said genially take a seat sir i'm all in confusion here giving up business you see yes i called on you i think having read the watchman account of that marbury affair and having seen the murdered man's photograph in your columns that i can give you a bit of information material asked spargo tersely mr crydie cocked one of his bright eyes at his visitor he coughed dryly that's for you to decide when you've heard it he said i should say considering everything that it was material well it's this i kept open until yesterday everything as usual you know stuck in the window and so on so that anybody who was passing would naturally have thought that the business was going on though as a matter of fact i'm retiring retired added mr crydie with a laugh last night now but won't you take down what i've got to tell you i'm taking it down answered spargo every word in my head mr crydie laughed and rubbed his hands oh he said oh well in my young days journalists used to pull out pencil and notebook at the first opportunity but you modern young man just so agreed spargo this information now well said mr crydie we'll go on then yesterday afternoon the man described as marbury came into my shop he what time exact time asked spargo two to the very minute by st clement dane's clock answered mr crydie i'd swear twenty affidavits on that point he was precisely as you've described him dressed everything i tell you i knew his photo as soon as i saw it he was carrying a little box what sort of box asked spargo a queer old-fashioned much-worn leather box a very miniature trunk in fact replied mr crydie about a foot square the sort of thing you never see nowadays it was very much worn it attracted me for that very reason he set it on the counter and looked at me you're a dealer in stamps rare stamps he said i am i replied i've something here i'd like to show you he said unlocking the box it's stop a bit said spargo where did he take the key from with which he unlocked the box it was one of several which he carried on a split ring and he took the bunch out of his left-hand trousers pocket replied mr crydie oh i keep my eyes open young gentleman well he opened his box it seemed to me to be full of papers at any rate there are a lot of legal-looking documents on the top tied up with red tape to show you how i noticed things i saw that the papers were stained with age 
and that the red tape was faded to a mere washed-out pink. Good, good, murmured Spargo. Excellent. Proceed, sir. He put his hand under the topmost papers and drew out an envelope, continued Mr. Crydear. From the envelope he produced an exceedingly rare, exceedingly valuable set of colonial stamps, the very first ever issued. "'I've just come from Australia,' he said. "'I promised a young friend of mine out there to sell these stamps for him in London, and as I was passing this way I caught sight of your shop. Will you buy them, and how much will you give for them? "'Prompt,' muttered Spargo. "'He seemed to me the sort of man who doesn't waste words,' agreed Mr. Crydear. "'Well, there was no doubt about the stamps, nor about their great value, "'but I had to explain to him that I was retiring from business that very day "'and did not wish to enter into even a single deal, "'and that therefore I couldn't do anything. "'No matter,' he says. "'I dare say there are lots of men in your line of trade. "'Perhaps you can recommend me to a good firm.' "'I could recommend you to a dozen extra good firms,' I answered, "'but I can do better for you.' "'I'll give you the name and address of a private buyer who, I haven't the least doubt, "'will be very glad to buy that set from you and will give you a big price. "'Write it down,' he says, and thank you for your trouble. "'So I gave him a bit of advice as to the price he ought to get, "'and I wrote the name and address of the man I referred to on the back of one of my cards. "'Whose name and address?' asked Spargo. "'Mr. Nicholas Cardlestone. Two Pilcox Buildings, Middle Temple Lane, replied Mr. Crydear. Mr. Cardlestone is one of the most enthusiastic and accomplished philatelists in Europe, and I knew he didn't possess that set of stamps. I know Mr. Cardlestone, remarked Spargo. It was at the foot of his stairs that Marbury was found murdered. Just so, said Mr. Crydear which makes me think that he was going to see Mr. Cardlestone when he was set upon, murdered, and robbed. Spargo looked fixedly at the retired stamp dealer. What, going to see an elderly gentleman in his rooms in the temple to offer to sell him philatelic rarities at past midnight, he said? I think not much. All right, replied Mr. Crydear. You think and argue on modern lines, which are, of course, highly superior. But how do you account for my having given Marbury Mr. Cardlestone's address, and for his having been found dead, murdered, at the foot of Cardlestone's stairs a few hours later? I don't account for it, said Spargo. I'm trying to. Mr. Crydy made no comment on this. He looked his visitor up and down for a moment gathered some idea of his capabilities, and suddenly offered him a cigarette. Spargo accepted it with a laconic word of thanks, and smoked halfway through it before he spoke again. "'Yes,' he said, "'I'm trying to account, and I shall account, and I'm much obliged to you, Mr. Crydear, for what you've told me. Now then, may I ask you a question or two? "'A thousand, responded Mr. Crydear, with great geniality. "'Very well.' "'Did Marbury say he'd call on Cardlestone?' "'He did. Said he'd call as soon as he could, that day. "'Have you told Cardlestone what you've just told me?' "'I have, but not until an hour ago, on my way back from your office, in fact. "'I met him in Fleet Street and told him.' "'Had he received a call from Marbury?' 
no never heard of or seen the man at least never heard of him until he heard of the murder he told me he and his friend mr elphick another philatelist went to see the body wondering if they could recognize it as any man they'd ever known but they couldn't i know they did said spargo i saw him at the mortuary hmm well one more question when marbury left you did he put those stamps in his box again as before no replied mr Crydee. he put them in his right-hand breast pocket and he locked up his old box and went off swinging it in his left hand spargo went away down fleet street seeing nobody he muttered to himself and was still muttering when he got into his room at the office and what he muttered was the same thing repeated over and over again six hours six hours six hours those six hours next morning the watchman came out with four leaded columns of up-to-date news about the marbury case and right across the top of the four ran a heavy double line of great capitals black and staring who saw john marbury between three fifteen p m and nine fifteen p m on the day preceding his murder End of chapter nine Chapter ten of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter ten The Leather Box. Whether Spargo was sanguine enough to expect that his staring headline would bring him information of the sort he wanted was a secret which he kept to himself. That a good many thousands of human beings must have set eyes on John Marbury between the hours which Spargo set forth in that headline, was certain. The problem was, what particular owner or owners of a pair or of many pairs of those eyes would remember him? Why should they remember him? Walters and his wife had reason to remember him. Crydeer had reason to remember him. So had Myerst. So had William Webster but between a quarter past three when he left the london and universal safe deposit and a quarter past nine when he sat down by webster's side in the lobby of the house of commons nobody seemed to have any recollection of him except mr fiskey the hatter and he only remembered him faintly and because marbury had bought a fashionable cloth cap at his shop at any rate by noon of that day nobody had come forward with any recollection of him he must have gone west from seeing myerst because he bought his cap at fiskey's he must eventually have gone southwest because he turned up at westminster but where else did he go what did he do to whom did he speak no answer came to these questions that shows observed young mr ronald breton lazing an hour away in spargo's room at the watchman at that particular hour which is neither noon nor afternoon wherein even busy men do nothing that shows how a chap can go about london as if he were merely an ant that had strayed into another ant heap than his own nobody notices you'd better go and read up a little elementary entomology breton said spargo 
I don't know much about it myself, but I've a pretty good idea that when an ant walks into the highways and byways of a colony to which he doesn't belong, he doesn't survive his intrusion very many seconds. Well, you know what I mean, said Breton. London's an ant heap, isn't it? One human ant more or less doesn't count. This man, Marbury, must have gone about a pretty tidy lot during those six hours. He'd ride on a bus, almost certain. He'd get into a taxicab. I think that's much more certain, because it would be a novelty to him. He'd want some tea. Anyway, he'd be sure to want a drink. And he'd turn in somewhere to get one or the other. He'd buy things in shops. These colonials always do. He'd go somewhere to get his dinner. He'd... But what's the use of enumeration in this case? A mere piling up of platitudes, answered Spargo. What I mean is, continued Breton, that piles of people must have seen him, and yet it's now hours and hours since your paper came out this morning, and nobody's come forward to tell anything. And when you come to think of it, why should they? Who'd remember an ordinary man in a grey tweed suit? "'An ordinary man in a grey tweed suit,' repeated Spargo. "'Good line. You haven't any copyright in it, remember? "'It would make a good cross-heading.' Breton laughed. "'You're a queer chap, Spargo,' he said. "'Seriously, do you think you're getting any nearer anything?' "'Getting nearer something with everything that's done,' Spargo answered. "'You can't start on a business like this without evolving something out of it, you know.' "'Well,' said Breton, "'to me there's not so much mystery in it. "'Mr. Aylmer's explained the reason "'why my address was found on the body. "'Crydee, the stamp man, has explained—' "'Spargo suddenly looked up. "'What?' he said sharply. "'Why, the reason of Marbury's being found "'where he was found,' replied Breton. "'Of course I see it all. "'Marbury was mooning around Fleet Street. "'He slipped into Middle Temple Lane, late as it was,' just to see where old cardlestone hangs out and he was set upon and done for the thing's plain to me the only thing now is to find who did it yes that's it agreed spargo that's it he turned over the leaves of the diary which lay on his desk by the by he said looking up with some interest the adjourned inquest is at eleven o'clock tomorrow morning are you going i shall certainly go answered breton What's more, I'm going to take Miss Aylmore and her sister, as the gruesome details were over at the first sitting, and as there'll be nothing but this new evidence tomorrow, and as they've never been in a coroner's court. Mr. Aylmore be the principal witness tomorrow, interrupted Spargo. I suppose he'll be able to tell a lot more than he told me. Breton shrugged his shoulders. I don't see that there's much more to tell, he said. "'But,' he added, with a sly laugh, "'I suppose you want some more good copy, eh?' Spargo glanced at his watch, rose, and picked up his hat. "'I'll tell you what I want,' he said. "'I want to know who John Marbury was. "'That would make good copy. "'Who he was twenty, twenty-five, forty years ago, eh?' "'And you think Mr. Aylmore can tell?' asked Breton. "'Mr. Aylmore,' answered Spargo, as they walked towards the door, "'is the only person I have met so far who has admitted that he knew John Marbury in the past. "'But he didn't tell me, 
much. Perhaps he'll tell the coroner and his jury more. Now, I'm off, Breton. I've an appointment. And leaving Breton to find his own way out, Spargo hurried away, jumped into a taxicab and speeded to the London and Universal Safe Deposit. At the corner of its building he found Rathbury awaiting him. "'Well,' said Spargo, as he sprang out, "'how is it?' "'It's all right,' answered Rathbury. "'You can be present. I got the necessary permission. "'As there are no relations known, there'll only be one or two officials and you, "'and the safe deposit people, and myself. Come on, it's about time.' "'It sounds,' observed Spargo, "'like an exhumation.' Rathbury laughed. "'Well, we're certainly going to dig up a dead man's secrets,' he said. "'At least we may be going to do so. "'In my opinion, Mr. Spargo, we'll find some clue in this leather box.' Spargo made no answer. They entered the office to be shown into a room where already assembled Mr. Myast, a gentleman who turned out to be the chairman of the company, and the officials of whom Rathbury had spoken and in another moment Spargo heard the chairman explaining that the company possessed duplicate keys to all safes, and that the proper authorization having been received from the proper authorities, those present would now proceed to the safe recently tenanted by the late Mr. John Marbury, and take from it the property which he himself had deposited there, a small leather box, which they would afterwards bring to that room and cause to be opened in each other's presence. It seemed to Spargo that there was an unending unlocking of bolts and bars before he and his fellow processionists came to the safe so recently rented by the late Mr. John Marbury, now undoubtedly deceased. And at first sight of it, he saw that it was so small an affair that it seemed ludicrous to imagine that it could contain anything of any importance. In fact, it looked to be no more than a plain wooden locker, one amongst many in a small strong room. It reminded Spargo irresistibly of the locker in which, in his school days, he had kept his personal belongings and the jam tarts, sausage rolls, and hardbake smuggled in from the tuck shop. Marbury's name had been newly painted upon it. The paint was scarcely dry, but when the wooden door, the front door, as it were, of this temple of mystery, had been solemnly opened by the chairman, a formidable door of steel was revealed, and expectation still leapt in the bosoms of the beholders. "'The duplicate key, Mr. Myers, if you please,' commanded the chairman. "'The duplicate key.' Myers, who was fully as solemn as his principal, produced a curious-looking key. The chairman lifted his hand as if he were about to christen a battleship. The steel door swung slowly back, and there, in a two-foot square cavity, lay the leather box. It struck Spargo, as they filed back to the secretary's room, that the procession became more funereal-like than ever. First walked the chairman, abreast with the high official who had brought the necessary authorization from the all-powerful quarter. Then came Myers, carrying the box, followed two other gentlemen, both legal lights, charged with watching official and police interests. Rathbury and Spargo brought up the rear. He whispered something of his notions to the detective. Rathbury nodded a comprehensive understanding. "'Let's hope we're going to see... something,' he said. 
in the secretary's room a man waited who touched his forelock respectfully as the heads of the procession entered Myest set the box on the table the man made a musical jingle of keys the other members of the procession gathered round as we naturally possess no key to this box announced the chairman in grave tones it becomes our duty to employ professional assistance in opening it jobson he waved a hand and the man of the keys stepped forward with alacrity he examined the lock of the box with a knowing eye it was easy to see that he was anxious to fall upon it while he considered matters spargo looked at the box it was pretty much what it had been described to him as being a small square box of old cowhide very strongly made much worn and tarnished fitted with a handle projecting from the lid and having the appearance of having been hidden away somewhere for many a long day there was a click a spring jobson stepped back that's it if you please sir he said the chairman motioned to the high official if you would be good enough to open the box sir he said our duty is now concluded as the high official laid his hand on the lid the other men gathered round with craning necks and expectant eyes the lid was lifted somebody sighed deeply and spargo pushed his own head and eyes nearer the box was empty empty as anything that can be empty is empty thought spargo there was literally nothing in it they were all staring into the interior of a plain time-worn little receptacle lined out with old-fashioned chintz stuff such as our mid-victorian forefathers were familiar with and containing nothing god bless my soul exclaimed the chairman this is dear me why there is nothing in the box that remarked the high official dryly appears to be obvious the chairman looked at the secretary i understood the box was valuable mr myerst he said with a half-injured air of a man who considers himself to have been robbed of an exceptionally fine treat valuable myerst coughed i can only repeat what i have already said sir benjamin he answered the uh, late mr marbury spoke of the deposit as being of great value to him he never permitted it out of his hand until he placed it in the safe he appeared to regard it as of the greatest value but we understand from the evidence of mr crydeer given to the watchman newspaper that it was full of papers and and other articles said the chairman crydeer saw papers in it about an hour before it was brought here Myers spread out his hands i can only repeat what i have said sir benjamin he answered i know nothing more but why should a man deposit an empty box began the chairman i the high official interposed that the box is empty is certain he observed did you ever handle it yourself mr myerst myerst smiled in a superior fashion i have already observed sir that from the time the deceased entered this room until the moment he placed the box in the safe which he rented the box was never out of his hands he replied then there was silence at last the high official turned to the chairman very well he said we've made the inquiry 
Rathbury, take the box away with you and lock it up at the yard. So Spargo went out with Rathbury and the box, and saw excellent, if mystifying, material for the article which had already become the daily feature of his paper. End of chapter 10《Chapter Eleven of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. Mr. Aylmore is questioned. It seemed to Spargo, as he sat listening to the proceedings at the adjourned inquest next day, that the whole story of what was now world famous as the Middle Temple Murder case was being reiterated before him for the thousandth time. There was not a detail of the story with which he had not become familiar to fullness. The first proceeding before the coroner had been of a merely formal nature. These were thorough and exhaustive. The representative of the Crown and twelve good men and true of the City of London were there to hear and to find out and to arrive at a conclusion as to how the man known as John Marbury came by his death. And although he knew all about it, Spargo found himself tabulating the evidence in a professional manner, and noting how each successive witness contributed, as it were, a chapter to the story. The story itself ran quite easily, naturally, consecutively. You could make it in sections, and Spargo, sitting merely to listen, made them. 1. The Temple Porter and Constable Driscoll proved the finding of the body. 2. The police surgeon testified as to the cause of death. The man had been struck down from behind by a blow, a terrible blow, from some heavy instrument, and had died immediately. 3. The police and the mortuary officials proved that when the body was examined, nothing was found in the clothing but the now famous scrap of grey paper. 4. Rathbury proved that by means of the dead man's new fashionable cloth cap, bought at Fiske's well-known shop in the West End, he traced Marbury to the Anglo-Orient Hotel in the Waterloo District. 5. Mr. and Mrs. Walters gave evidence of the arrival of Marbury at the Anglo-Orient Hotel and of his doings while he was in and about there. 6. The purser of the S.S. Wamberino proved that Marbury sailed from Melbourne to Southampton on that ship, excited no remark, behaved himself like any other well-regulated passenger, and left the Wamberino at Southampton early in the morning of what was to be the last day of his life, in just the ordinary manner. 7. Mr. Crydier gave evidence of his rencontre with Marbury in the matter of the stamps. 8. Mr. Myers told of Marbury's visit to the safe deposit, and further proved that the box which he placed there proved, on official examination, to be empty. 9. William Webster retold the story of his encounter with Marbury in one of the vestibules of the House of Commons, and of his witnessing the meeting between him and the gentleman whom he, Webster, now knew to be Mr. Aylmore, a Member of Parliament. All this led up to the appearance of Mr. Aylmore, M.P., in the witness-box, and Spargo knew and felt that it was the appearance for which the crowded court was waiting. Thanks to his own vivid and realistic specials in The Watchman, 
everybody there had already become well and thoroughly acquainted with the mass of evidence represented by the nine witnesses who had been in the box before mr aylmore entered it they were familiar too with the facts which mr aylmore had permitted spargo to print after the interview at the club which ronald breton arranged why then the extraordinary interest which the member of parliament's appearance aroused for everybody was extraordinarily interested from the coroner downwards to the last man who had managed to squeeze himself into the last available inch of the public gallery all who were there wanted to hear and see the man who met marbury under such dramatic circumstances and who went to his hotel with him hobnobbed with him gave him advice walked out of the hotel with him for a stroll from which marbury never returned spargo knew well why the interest was so keen everybody knew that aylmore was the only man who could tell the court anything really pertinent about marbury who he was what he was after what his life had been he looked round the court as the member of parliament entered the witness-box a tall handsome perfectly groomed man whose beard was only slightly tinged with grey whose figure was as erect as a well-drilled soldier's who carried about him an air of conscious power aylmore's two daughters sat at a little distance away opposite spargo with ronald breton in attendance upon them spargo had encountered their glance as they entered the court and they had given him a friendly nod and smile he had watched them from time to time it was plain to him that they regarded the whole affair as a novel sort of entertainment they might have been idlers in some eastern bazaar listening to the unfolding of many tales from the professional tale-tellers now as their father entered the box spargo looked at them again he saw nothing more than a little heightening of colour in their cheeks a little brightening of their eyes all that they feel he thought is a bit of extra excitement at the idea that their father is mixed up in this delightful mystery hm well now how much is he mixed up and he turned to the witness-box and from that moment never took his eyes off the man who now stood in it for spargo had ideas about the witness which he was anxious to develop the folk who expected something immediately sensational in mr aylmore's evidence were disappointed aylmore having been sworn and asked a question or two by the coroner requested permission to tell in his own way what he knew of the dead man and of this sad affair and having received that permission he went on in a calm unimpassioned manner to repeat precisely what he had told spargo it sounded a very plain ordinary story he had known marbury many years ago he had lost sight of him for well quite twenty years he had met him accidentally in one of the vestibules of the house of commons on the evening preceding the murder marbury had asked his advice having no particular duty and willing to do an old acquaintance a good turn he had gone back to the anglo-orient hotel with marbury and remained a while with him in his room examining his australian diamonds and had afterwards gone out with him he had given him the advice he wanted they had strolled across waterloo bridge shortly afterwards they had parted that was all he knew the court the public spargo everybody there knew all this already it had been in print under a big headline in the watchman 
Aylmore had now told it again. Having told it, he seemed to consider that his next step was to leave the box and the court, and after a perfunctory question or two from the coroner and the foreman of the jury, he made a motion as if to step down. But Spargo, who had been aware since the beginning of the inquiry of the presence of a certain eminent counsel who represented the Treasury, cocked his eye in that gentleman's direction, and was not surprised to see him rise in his well-known, apparently indifferent fashion, fix his monocle in his right eye, and glance at the tall figure in the witness-box. "'The fun is going to begin,' muttered Spargo. The Treasury representative looked from Aylmore to the coroner, and made a jerky bow, from the coroner to Aylmore, and straightened himself. He looked like a man who is going to ask indifferent questions about the state of the weather, or how Smith's wife was last time you heard of her, or if stocks are likely to rise or fall. But Spargo had heard this man before, and he knew many signs of his in voice and manner and glance. "'I want to ask you a few questions, Mr. Aylmore, about your acquaintanceship with the dead man.' "'It was an acquaintanceship of some time ago?' began the suave, seemingly careless voice. "'A considerable time ago,' answered Aylmore. "'How long, roughly speaking?' "'I should say from twenty to twenty-two or three years.' "'Never saw him during that time until you met accidentally in the way you have described to us? "'Never.' "'Ever heard from him?' "'No.' "'Ever heard of him?' "'No.' "'But when you met, you knew each other at once?' "'Well, almost at once.' "'Almost at once. "'Then I take it you were very well known to each other twenty or twenty-two years ago.' "'We were, yes, well known to each other. "'Close friends. "'I said we were acquaintances.' "'Acquaintances. "'What was his name when you knew him at that time?' "'His name? "'It was Marbury.' "'Marbury.' the same name. Where did you know him? I, oh, here in London. What was he? Do you mean what was his occupation? What was his occupation? I believe he was concerned in financial matters. Concerned in financial matters. Had you dealings with him? Well, yes, on occasions. What was his business address in london i can't remember that what was his private address that i never knew where did you transact your business with him well we met now and then where what place office resort i can't remember particular places sometimes in the city in the city where in the city mansion house or lombard street or st paul's churchyard or the old bailey or where i have recollections of meeting him outside the stock exchange oh was he a member of that institution not that i know of were you certainly not what were the dealings that you had with him financial dealings small ones how long did your acquaintanceship with him last what period did it extend over i should say about six months to nine months 
no more certainly no more it was quite a slight acquaintanceship then oh quite and yet after losing sight of this merely slight acquaintance for over twenty years you on meeting him take great interest in him well i was willing to do him a good turn i was interested in what he told me the other evening i see now you will not object to my asking you a personal question or two you are a public man and the facts about the lives of public men are more or less public property you are represented in this work of popular reference as coming to this country in nineteen o two from argentina where you made a considerable fortune you have told us however that you were in london acquainted with mr marbury about the years say eighteen ninety to eighteen ninety two did you then leave england soon after knowing marbury i did i left england in eighteen ninety one or eighteen ninety two i am not sure which we are wanting to be very sure about this matter mr aylmore we want to solve the important question who is who was john marbury and how did he come by his death you seem to be the only available person who knows anything about him what was your business before you left england i was interested in financial affairs like marbury where did you carry on your business in london of course at what address for some moments aylmore had been growing more and more restive his brow had flushed his moustache had begun to twitch and now he squared his shoulders and faced his questioner defiantly i resent these questions about my private affairs he snapped out possibly but i must put them i repeat my last question and i refuse to answer it then i ask you another where did you live in london at the time you are telling us of when you knew john marbury i refuse to answer that question also the treasury council sat down and looked at the coroner End of chapter eleven chapter twelve of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twelve the new witness the voice of the coroner bland suave deprecating broke the silence he was addressing the witness i am sure mr aylmore he said there is no wish to trouble you with unnecessary questions but we are here to get at the truth of this matter of john marbury's death and as you are the only witness we have had who knew him personally aylmore turned impatiently to the coroner i have every wish to respect your authority sir he exclaimed and i have told you all that i know of marbury and of what happened when i met him the other evening but i resent being questioned on my private affairs of twenty years ago i very much resent it any question that is really pertinent i will answer but i will not answer questions that seem to me wholly foreign to the scope of this inquiry the treasury counsel rose again his manner had become of the quietest and spargo again became keenly attentive perhaps i can put a question or two to mr aylmore which will not yield him offence he remarked dryly 
he turned once more to the witness regarding him as if with interest can you tell us of any person now living who knew marbury in london at the time under discussion twenty to twenty-two or three years ago he asked aylmore shook his head angrily no i can't he replied and yet you and he must have had several business acquaintances at that time who knew you both possibly at that time but when i returned to england my business and my life lay in different directions to those of that time i don't know of anybody who knew marbury then anybody the counsel turned to a clerk who sat behind him whispered to him spargo saw the clerk make a sidelong motion of his head towards the door of the court the counsel looked again at the witness one more question you told the court a little time since that you parted with marbury on the evening preceding his death at the end of waterloo bridge at i think you said a quarter to twelve about that time and at that place yes that is all i want to ask you mr aylmore just now said the counsel he turned to the coroner i am going to ask you sir at this point to call a witness who has volunteered certain evidence to the police authorities this morning that evidence is of a very important nature and i think that this is the stage at which it ought to be given to you and the jury if you will be pleased to direct that david lyell be called spargo turned instinctively to the door having seen the clerk who had sat behind the treasury counsel make his way there there came into view ushered by the clerk a smart-looking alert self-confident young man evidently a scotsman who on the name of david lyell being called stepped jauntily and readily into the place which the member of parliament just vacated he took the oath scotch fashion with the same readiness and turned easily to the treasury counsel and spargo glancing quickly round saw that the court was breathless with anticipation and that its anticipation was that the new witness was going to tell something which related to the evidence just given by aylmore your name is david lyell that is my name sir and you reside at twenty-three cumbray side kilmarnock scotland i do what are you mr lyell traveller sir for the firm of messrs stevenson robertson and souter distillers of kilmarnock your duties take you i think over to paris occasionally they do once every six weeks i go to paris on the evening of june twenty-first last when you were in london on your way to paris i was i believe you stayed at de kaiser's hotel at the blackfriars end of the embankment i did it's handy for the continental trains about half-past eleven or a little later that evening did you go along the embankment on the temple garden side for a walk i did sir i'm a bad sleeper and it's a habit of mine to take a walk of half an hour or so last thing before i go to bed how far did you walk as far as waterloo bridge always on the temple side just so sir straight along on that side very good when you got close to waterloo bridge did you meet anybody you knew yes mr aylmore the member of parliament spargo could not avoid a glance at the two sisters the elder's head was averted the younger was staring at the witness steadily 
and Breton was nervously tapping his fingers on the crown of his shining silk hat. "'Mr. Aylmore, the Member of Parliament,' repeated the council's suave, clear tones. "'Oh, and how did you come to recognise Mr. Aylmore, Member of Parliament?' "'Well, sir, in this way. At home I'm the secretary of our Liberal Ward Club, and last year we had a demonstration, and it fell to me to arrange with the principal speakers.' I got Mr. Aylmore to come and speak, and naturally I met him several times in London and in Scotland. So that you knew him quite well? Oh, yes, sir. Do you see him now, Mr. Lyell? Lyell smiled and half turned in the box. Why, of course, he answered, there is Mr. Aylmore. There is Mr. Aylmore. Very good. Now we go on. You met Mr. Aylmore close to Waterloo Bridge. How close? Well, to be exact, Mr. Aylmore came down the steps from the bridge onto the embankment. Alone? No. Who was with him? A man, sir. Did you know the man? No. But seeing who he was with, I took a good look at him. I haven't forgotten his face. You haven't forgotten his face? Mr. Lyell, has anything recalled that face to you within this last day or two? Yes, sir, indeed. What? The picture of the man they say was murdered, John Marbury. You're sure of that? I'm as certain, sir, as that my name's what it is. It is your belief that Mr. Aylmore, when you met him, was accompanied by the man who, according to the photographs, was John Marbury. It is, sir. Very well. Now, having seen Mr. Aylmore and his companion, what did you do? Oh, I just turned and walked after them. You walked after them? They were going eastward then. They were walking by the way I'd come. You followed them eastward. I did. I was going back to the hotel, you see. What were they doing? Talking uncommonly earnestly, sir. How far did you follow them? I followed them until they came to the embankment lodge of Middle Temple Lane, sir. And then? Why, sir, they turned in there, and I went straight on to De Kaiser's and to my bed. There was a deeper silence in court at that moment than at any other period of the long day, and it grew deeper when the quiet, keen voice put the next question. You swear on your oath that you saw Mr. Aylmore take his companion into the temple by the embankment entrance of Middle Temple Lane on the occasion in question? I do. I could swear no other, sir. Can you tell us, as near as possible, what time that would be? Yes, it was to a minute or so, about five minutes past twelve. The Treasury Council nodded to the coroner, and the coroner, after a whispered conference with the foreman of the jury, looked at the witness. "'You have only just given this information to the police, I understand,' he said. "'Yes, sir, I have been in Paris and in Amiens, and only returned by this morning's boat. "'As soon as I had read all the news in the papers, the English papers, and seen the dead man's photographs, "'I determined to tell the police what I knew, and I went to New Scotland Yard as soon as I got to London this morning.' "'Nobody else wanted to ask Mr. David Lyell any questions, and he stepped down.' and Mr. Aylmore suddenly came forward again, 
seeking the coroner's attention. "'May I be allowed to make an explanation, sir?' he began. "'I—' But the Treasury Counsel was on his feet, this time stern and implacable. "'I would point out, sir, that you have had Mr. Aylmore in the box, and that he was not then at all ready to give explanations, or even to answer questions,' he said. "'And before you allow him to make any explanation now, I ask you to hear another witness, whom I wish to interpose at this stage. That witness is—' Mr. Aylmore turned almost angrily to the coroner. "'After the evidence of the last witness, I think I have a right to be heard at once,' he said with emphasis. "'As matters stand at present, it looks as if I had trifled, sir, with you and the jury. Whereas if I am allowed to make an explanation—' "'I must respectfully ask that before Mr. Aylmore is allowed to make any explanation, the witness I have referred to is heard,' said the Treasury Counsel sternly. "'There are weighty reasons.' "'I am afraid you must wait a little, Mr. Aylmore, if you wish to give an explanation,' said the coroner. He turned to the counsel. "'Who is this other witness?' he asked. Aylmore stepped back, and Spargo noticed that the younger of his two daughters was staring at him with an anxious expression. There was no distrust of her father in her face. She was anxious. She, too, slowly turned to the next witness— this man was the porter of the embankment lodge of Middle Temple Lane. The Treasury Council put a straight question to him at once. "'You see that gentleman?' he said, pointing to Aylmore. "'Do you know him as an inmate of the temple?' The man stared at Aylmore, evidently confused. "'Why, certainly, sir,' he answered. "'Quite well, sir.' "'Very good. And now, what name do you know him by?' The man grew evidently more bewildered. "'Name, sir? Why, Mr. Anderson, sir,' he replied. "'Mr. Anderson!' End of chapter 12say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.